Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. Welcome to all our viewers and listeners from across the globe, but especially in the United States on this Independence Day celebration. Anything I say that is perceived as hurtful by some people in the United States is said with the best of intentions. I'm one of the few people on the left in British politics with American blood in my veins. My great-great-grandmother got on the boat in New York and sailed all the way to Dundee. Well, you can see her mistake. The reality is that you can listen to us in crystal clarity in the US on FM 105.5. That's the magic number. Donald Trump used to listen. Joe Biden doesn't know the said job, so probably isn't. But more and more people in and around the US Capitol are tuning in to hear what people think around the world of them. You can listen on AM all across the United States from Burning City to Burning City. You can listen all over the world thanks to the wonders of the internet and SputnikNews.com. If you're watching though, as half a million of you are now steadily every week, you can watch on Twitter, you can watch on Instagram, you can watch on Twitch, you can watch on my Telegram channel, you can watch on my YouTube channel and RT's multiple YouTube channels or on my Facebook or RT's multiple Facebook pages. And if you are on Facebook, please share now with everyone in your address book. Let them know that the mother of all talk shows has begun. Now, if Labour got the share of the vote that they got against me and others on Thursday in the Batley and Spen by-election, they would have fewer than 100 MPs at the next general election. Cue great celebration and the song from Keir Starmer that Labour is coming home. Well, coming home back to the levels of 1922, perhaps, because that would be the last time that Labour had fewer than 100 MPs. A lot of bilge has been talked about the by-election in Batley and Spen, and it's not difficult to see why. A deluge of fake news has spewed out of the fake news industry, otherwise known as the lamestream media. Almost every word of it is a lie. Some of it is the reverse of the truth, and all of it will come out in the court action that I have launched to have the result of the by-election set aside. 
Not because I'm claiming I won it, although some observers at the count are very clear that I was winning it until a large and, well, frankly, uh, unprovenanced uh, number of votes were brought in and shuffled onto the table, but I'm not claiming uh, that I won it. Neither do I want it set aside so that I can be the candidate in another by-election, for I will not be. But I'm determined that democracy must not just be done, but be seen to be done. And my legal case is roughly as follows. The winning margin on the night officially was less than 1%. According to the law, uh, the returning officer should order a recount of all the votes when the winning margin is less than 1%, unless that would be unreasonable. Well, it's hard to see what would be unreasonable about a recount on a majority of 323 votes after all the huffing and puffing in the Batley and Spen by-election. You would have thought that the returning officer would be only too keen to show that the result being returned was truly the result, but she was not. The Conservative runner-up demanded a recount. It was refused. I demanded a recount. It was refused. No reason for the refusal was given. A vital point when this matter comes before the courts. Secondly, and you may have seen on social media, and American viewers and listeners may recognize this, video footage of large numbers of votes arriving in the dead of night in bin bags, in black plastic bin bags, unsealed, unclosed, and being stuffed into ballot boxes. Perhaps that was the slew of votes uh, that the counting agents of other parties have reported to me that they saw at the count. The 16,000 postal vote applications were always suspicious, suspicious because letting a Labour Council, let alone Kirk Lee's Labour Council, in charge of 16,000 postal votes and expecting fairness and transparency would be a triumph of hope over experience. Because anybody who has ever fought labor in the inner cities knows exactly what labor does with postal votes. I don't need to spell it out to British listeners and viewers but to Americans, let me just say that Labour learned everything it could from the Tammany Hall Democrats and more. Thirdly, the Kirklees Labour Council, on the Monday of the final week of the campaign, at public expense, sent out its workforce to illegally remove thousands of my posters from around the constituency. The law is very clear. 
uh, that posters must have an imprint showing who the party that was posting the posters were. Not that that was difficult to work out because my face and my name and vote for me was all over them. We had an imprint. The law makes no reference whatsoever to the size of the imprint beyond that it must be readable. Ours were. But three days before polling day, the Labour Council in Kirklees, which was counting the votes on the Thursday, which was carrying the postal votes around in unsealed bin bags, decided to take my posters and only my posters down by the thousand at the taxpayer's expense. This a council that claims to be so cash strapped that it cannot fill in the potholes in its roads so large you could lie down and sleep in them. Coincidentally, on the very day that the Kirklees Council began removing my posters, Labour published yet another election leaflet saying Galloway is running out of steam just as my posters began disappearing from every street in the constituency. Then there was the budget-busting bonanza that Labour spent on the by-election. There is a spending limit of £100,000. Labour bust it by at least twice, maybe three times, when the salaries of all the scores of trade union officials and their union cars, their hotels, uh, their living expenses are factored into the election expenses. Plus all the Facebook advertising, plus all the leaflets. It all adds up to a budget buster, every penny of which the court will force them to account. Then there was uh, the false statements made about me and about our party, the Workers' Party of Britain, made not by the Labour camp, but on screen by the Labour candidate. Her lips moving, she uttered some of the most damning false statements it's possible to imagine. Those of you with long memories of British politics will remember the name Phil Woolis. Phil Woolis was a friend of mine once upon a time, worked for me once upon a time, was expelled from Parliament and disqualified from ever standing again for making false statements about his Liberal Democrat opponent in a general election which were far, far less damning than the statements attributed to me. I give you just one example or two. My Labour opponent said on television, which was rebroadcast on every television channel in Britain and all over social media, ad nauseum, with commentary, with narrative, that when she was being harangued by an Islamist extremist 
I was on the other side of the road laughing. In fact, I was on the same side of the road as she was, as the incident was. I was a hundred yards away. I was on camera being interviewed when it was happening. And I was not laughing. This false statement was used, is still being used, even today, as the base of a false narrative, deliberately false narrative, to damage my chances in the election, which is a crime under English electoral law. It is actually a criminal offence to do so. And the video and photographic evidence of the falsity of this claim is readily available and will be, of course, placed in front of the court. Practically every news outfit in Britain said that my supporters had thrown an egg at Labour campaigners. The fact that a 15-year-old minor with drug problems and absolutely no connection to our campaign has now been arrested for throwing an egg at Labour campaigners hasn't shut them up. In fact, it hasn't even been reported, though the entire fake news industry knows that fact, that the egging and any other false allegations will all be on the judge's table when this matter comes to court. I could go on, but I see I've gone on long enough. Let's just leave it at this. The Batley and Spen by-election isn't over yet. Why this blizzard of slander and libel? Well, to deflect attention from the fact that though they claimed I had come from nowhere, I was a carpetbagger. I didn't know my way around the constituency. I wasn't from round here. How would I get from A to B? Did I need a guide, they said. I got 22% of the vote from nowhere. More than 8,000 votes I took off Labour, leaving them with the aforementioned share of the vote, which would give them fewer than 100 MPs if repeated in a general election. Enough, enough of that. Is the Labour crisis over? If Labour had lost, would Keir Starmer have been challenged? Is Angela Rayner really limbering up for a leadership challenge? Will the Blairites expel her before she gets the chance? Will Keir Starmer sack her as Labour's deputy leader, or at least strip her of all authority? These are all questions that I'll discuss uh, with the former Labour Member of Parliament, Chris Williamson, in just a minute. Was the Hancock affair and Boris Johnson's bungling, bumbling handling of it one of the reasons why the Conservatives failed to capture the seat? And with the killing of a Palestinian journalist,
not by Israel, but by the Palestinian National Authority under Mahmoud Abbas, which has triggered massive upheaval on the West Bank and in Jerusalem, lead to the resignation, the standing down of the long-serving tyrant who became what he calls the president of the Palestinian Authority. We'll be talking uh, to the one and only Abdel Bari Atwan on that subject. We'll be talking to Tom McGregor on the 100th anniversary of the foundation of the Chinese Communist Party. We'll be talking to Caleb Mopan about what's going down on the other side of the Atlantic, in the media and in the political world. And we'll be talking to the one and only Patrick Christie's, effervescent as always, and in the studio. How wonderful a return to normality is it when I can sit in the studio with Patrick Christie. So stay tuned, why don't you, for the next three hours. It's going to be riveting. Uh, is football coming home is our first poll. Will England win the Euros? I vote yes. It's A for yes, B for no, C anyone but. That's obviously a churlish addition by my editor, Mr. Ron Mackay, who for quite perverse reasons is wearing a very lurid Scotland football top this evening. You know, and it's a very, thank you for, you know, I, I'm a big fan of your show, Gigi. Great, great debate. Great. And I'm Scottish. I'm very passionate about what's happening there, you know. I had a great mom. She was Scottish, Mary McLeod. She taught me well. She taught me well at everything, including golf. I love Scotland and I love the Scottish food. It's great food. I said to Melania, you know, haggis. Look at that. What's more than more Scottish than that? Me. I am that haggis. She said, what, thin-skinned and full of crap? For a roundup of what's the big stories in America, it's my RT America colleague, Caleb Mopan. Caleb, welcome back to the show. Always a delight to see you. What's rattling in the U.S. of A? Well, it's summertime, and we have some rather erratic weather that goes along with our erratic economy. Unemployment uh, is certainly a problem. They're giving us good job numbers, but if you look out at the streets of New York City, there's a lot of desperation. Uh, things are starting to open up. The pandemic seems like it's moving on, but Americans are hungry. Americans are homeless. Americans are frustrated, and they are angry. Uh, at the same time, there was fears here in New York City uh, that our power grid might explode. We all received notifications uh, last week uh, urging us not to use the electricity, a fear that what happened in Texas in the winter when the power grid uh, just went out and left people in, in the cold, a fear that we might have the opposite problem here in New York and lose power and have everyone, you know, boiling in the heat. Uh, the infrastructure of the United States is certainly in a state of decay. Joe Biden says he wants to do something about it. Um, meanwhile, uh, we have Bill Cosby, uh, you know, he's out of jail. Uh, he's no longer no longer locked up. Uh, the issue being prosecutorial misconduct. People are wondering about Kamala Harris and what she's planning to do about the border crisis. Many, many different situations here in the country, but a lot of frustration. Now, uh, let's talk about the uh, Cosby thing. By the way, the BBC, uh, true to the recent form, uh, had a reporter outside the jail as Bill Cosby was coming out, but 
unfortunately, she referred to the prisoner coming out through the door as Bill Clinton. Uh, is this uh, a major uh, setback uh, for those that uh, uh, celebrated the incarceration of a man that many of us grew up with and, and loved and respected? Uh, or is the prosecutorial misconduct so egregious uh, that the court had no choice but to release him? Well, the thing is that, I mean, we know Bill Cosby largely is guilty of the crimes for which he was charged. But the issue is that when uh, the prosecutors interviewed him, a deal was made that he would make incriminating statements and he would give them, you know, give them information which could be used against him in court in the understanding that he would not be charged. He was going to give them a deposition for a potential civil case. So with that understanding, uh, he made statements uh, incriminating himself. Um, and then they changed their mind. And uh, those statements were then used against him in court. And he was charged. The new prosecutor threw out the deal. Well, that is prosecutorial misconduct. And luckily, Bill Cosby, uh, for himself, I guess lucky for himself, he had a, a big legal team, a multi-million dollar defense, and they were able to argue this and ultimately get his conviction vacated. But prosecutorial misconduct like this goes on in many, many different cases throughout the United States. Kamala Harris, our current vice president, uh, her office was constantly being criticized when she was the California state attorney general. Uh, all kinds of behavior, hoping to land people in jail. For example, there was a drug lab in California that was rendering false positives. People would get tested for drugs and they would have not used drugs, but the drug lab was, would give false positives. And they never gave this information to the defense. So prosecutorial misconduct is going on across the United States. It just so happens that Bill Cosby, despite being guilty of, of assault and, and harming many, many different women, uh, despite that, uh, Bill Cosby, uh, you know, he was able to get a defense and get his conviction vacated on the basis of this prosecutorial misconduct. Uh, however, uh, many other folks uh, do not. So in this case, uh, certainly no love for the respect for Bill Cosby after what he was revealed to have done. Uh, but at the same time, it also reveals a big, big problem. How many people in the United States have a public defender uh, get dragged uh, into court, get arrested and don't have multimillion dollars uh, and get and get sent to jail when the prosecutors have have engaged in misconduct? I mean, it kind of reveals uh, a problem with our legal system. No one's happy that Bill Cosby is out, but no one's happy about how it was they managed to get him. It looks to me like the prosecutors just wanted their time on TV. They wanted to get a famous, newsworthy case. They wanted to get an opportunity to get some time on television. So they broke their own rules, and you can't have that. Well, that's, that segues me beautifully into my next question. Uh, they're planning the same thing against the Trumps in the southern district of your own city, aren't they? Uh, what's the current state of the legal moves to prosecute, uh, if not Donald Trump himself, although he's in the frame, but at least his family members? Well, again, this is a situation where one looks over the history of Donald Trump and Trump University and Trump Airlines and Trump Stakes and, you know, Trump's career. And uh, it, it wouldn't be surprising if there was something there that a prosecutor could do something about. But why now? Uh, this has a lot to do with January 6th. This has a lot to do with Donald Trump being banned from social media and that 
you know, there's there's a lot written. There's there's books that talk about three felonies a day, uh, and that professionals in the United States, uh, you know, they 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 violate the law pretty routinely just doing regular business. And that the way the federal and in some cases state prosecutors operate is they're not prosecuting crimes; they're prosecuting people. They find a person and they're directed to go after the person and dig into their personal records, their financial transactions, and find a way to get the person. Um, and it seems like that is the situation. I wouldn't be shocked if Donald Trump had uh, engaged in some nefarious activities. I, I certainly have heard stories about Trump not paying people who, who do work for him, about people having to sue in order to get just being paid for basic services. I mean, I mean I'm, not, I'm not here saying that Trump is, is innocent by any means, but the timing of the prosecution indicates divisions. Ronald Reagan, when he was president, he used to say, we're all friends after six o'clock. Democrats, Republicans, we're all good buddies. We're all on the same team here. It's not like that in the United States right now. Uh, after the incident in January on Capitol Hill, uh, after the you know, social media and their efforts to, to shut down some voices while highlighting others, they've got this new app urging people to turn in their friends for allegedly being extremists. Uh, it's down and dirty. Uh, the elite in the United States are at each other's throats in this time. And I put the prosecution of Trump and his business associates, I put it in that context regardless of what the facts may be about the case. And what's he doing now? I see that he's uh, out on the stump, uh, although it's not officially stump time. He's having rallies. He's, I'm beginning to see more of him, which is difficult because he's banned, as you say, off all the social media platforms. But somehow his face is starting to appear again. Well, they need him. Donald Trump is the Republican Party at this point. All the neocons, all the people that were supporters of Bush's war have been welcomed into the Joe Biden Democratic Party woke establishment coalition. What does it mean to be a member of the Republican Party? Uh, this isn't the party of neoconservatism anymore. Uh, this isn't the party of war hawks necessarily anymore, even though they're quite hawkish when it comes to issues like Iran and the Middle East. Uh, what does it mean to be a Republican? Well, at this point, all that it means to be a Republican is Donald Donald Trump. Uh, you know, we've got Joe Biden. He made a, a statement a couple months back where he said in 2024, he didn't know if the Republican Party would even still be around. Um, so it, it seems like political uh, divisions in the United States have taken this weird turn where Trump and his populism is the symbol of one side of the political spectrum and this broad coalition of the establishment that says the United States needs a woke makeover to justify its foreign interventions on the basis of being an egalitarian, anti-racist, pro-LGBT power that goes around liberating people from evil populist dictators, uh, you know, that this woke coalition of American imperialism, uh, they're the Democratic Party. The Democrats are no longer the party of left or opposition to the status quo. Meanwhile, Republicanism is simply synonymous with Trumpism at this point. We're in a very strange place politically as a country. That is absolutely for sure. Now, I said at the beginning of the show, uh, it is the 4th of July, and I wish you a happy one. Uh, you celebrate uh, rising up and overthrowing a tyrannical imperial power, uh, but in a classic case of the abused becoming the abuser, you have yourselves become a tyrannical imperialist power. How does that feel, Caleb? 
Well, it's one of the ironies of American history. But, uh, you know, I know your viewers may see it differently. But when you look at the American Revolution, the issue really was, should the United States develop economically? Or should it simply remain a trade hub in a global uh, economic system, you know, led by the East India Company and other corporations based in the city of London? It was a question of should we have economic development in the United States or should we simply be a trade hub in a, in a global empire? And I think that question is still open. I think there are a lot of forces in the American government uh, that at this point see the United States just as a trading hub in a global financial system uh, where all the wealth and power go goes to Wall Street, New York, or the London Stock Exchange. Uh, however, there are many working people that say, no, we don't want to be left behind. Uh, we need economic development here in the United States. We need roads. We need bridges. We, we need you know, hospitals. We need decent schools for our kids. And, and that there was really a, a question of economic theories. Uh, the American Revolution had a lot to do with the theories of Adam Smith and his free trade, libertarian, globalist economic model uh, versus uh, folks like Alexander Hamilton, that argued that we needed to have economic development and that the state should set up a national bank to fund things like lighthouses and et cetera and try to try to stabilize and build up industry in the, in the country. There were, there were two different economic theories at hand. It wasn't British folks versus American folks. In fact, most of the people fighting in the American Revolution had been born in your country by the t and then just come over. So it, 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 wasn't, it wasn't a fight between two countries, but rather between two economic modes of thought. So I can't tempt you back. <laughs> no, uh, no, but I, I think, though, that there is there are a lot of people in the United States uh, that, that would look at our current you know, economic setup and say, this isn't really benefiting us. During the Cold War, uh, 50s and 60s, the way this country was held together was you did have this prosperous middle class uh, of industrial workers. And when they bombed Vietnam and they bombed Korea and they carried out coups, uh, they were kind of benefiting from it with the economic stability at home. But the story uh, of the last two or three decades has just been the demolition of this industrial middle class in the United States. Working class communities in the United States have been devastated. You know, look at Pittsburgh, you know, look at look at Cleveland, look at Chicago. I mean, the heartland of America that was once full of prosperous industrial workers uh, has just been destroyed. And I think this is a moment where a lot of working people in the United States, uh, they're, they're more critical of the wars than ever before. And uh, there's now more opposition to the police state and mass incarceration than I've ever seen in my lifetime. Um, and at this point, I, I think that there is an opportunity for that American chauvinist mindset to be challenged. I think a lot of Americans, uh, you know, at this point don't harbor the, the hatred and contempt for people around the world that might be fighting for their national liberation uh, that they once did. They, they don't support the wars and they certainly don't admire Wall Street and the Pentagon. Caleb Mopan, as always, thank you very much indeed for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. Now, I've got a long list of places that you can watch as well as listen. Of course, listeners are just as valuable to us as viewers. We're not vain or anything. We like to think that as many people are listening as are watching. But if you are watching, here's where you can do it. Moats TV Twitter, Moats TV Facebook, Twitch, on RT International's YouTube and RT International's Facebook, on RT UK's YouTube and RT UK's Facebook, 
on RTUK's Twitter. And on George Galloway Facebook, George Galloway YouTube, George Galloway Twitter, and on FM in the Washington DC area of the United States, 105.5 FM there. And right across the United States on AM, out of Maryland. And the monologue is streamed as usual on Instagram. And thousands, of course, are listening on our good friends, sputniknews.com. Download their app, why don't you? Join the growing number of people studying at the Open University of the Airwaves. Chris Williamson, uh, like me, a former Labour Member of Parliament, like me, drummed out of the Labour Party uh, for no good reason. Uh, Chris Williamson, like me, is determined that there will be life after Labour. The big question is, how much life is left in Labour? How much life is left in the left of Labour? There's nobody better to talk about those subjects with than the former Labour MP for Derby, Chris Williamson. Chris, welcome. Good evening, George. Nice to see you. Uh, first of all, what would be the reasons, do you think, why I would take 22%, getting on for a quarter of the Labour vote in Batley and Spen? And do you think those reasons are applicable across the country in any way? Uh, well, first of all, George, let me say I wish that I had been uh, congratulating you this evening on winning the Batley and Spen by-election. Right. I think you put in an outstanding campaign and it was really a huge advance, I think, for the Workers' Party, even though you didn't succeed. But to achieve 22% of the poll, as you point out, was quite a remarkable achievement, given that the Workers' Party has only been in this existence, I think, for just over a year. And the Labour Party has dropped from a high under Jeremy Corbyn's leadership in 2017 uh, in that constituency where they've lost, I think, something in the order of 16,000 fewer votes than they achieved in 2017. And actually, over 9,000 fewer votes than they achieved in 2019, which was a disastrous outcome. And I saw an article in The Guardian, I think it was yesterday, where they refer to it as a morale-boosting victory for uh, Keir Starmer. I think the Labour Party is in terminal decline, and you talked about the, the left of the Labour Party in your introductory remarks there, and I think, frankly, they have been left wanting as well. I mean, under Jeremy's leadership, there was a huge opportunity, I think, to, to move the Labour Party forward. There was a, uh, a desire, I think, for uh, the sort of genuine alternative that Jeremy was beginning to set out there, but unfortunately, they, they flunked it. Uh, there was, as we know, a concerted smear campaign against uh, Jeremy, obviously, but also against his supporters, his Praetorian Guard, if you like. And they were systematically removed from the party, thrown under the bus, and not a single voice was raised in opposition to that from the left of the Parliamentary Labour Party, the so-called Socialist Campaign Group, other than my own voice, actually. I was literally the only one who was prepared to speak out against the, the witch hunt. It was a, a bogus uh, uh, accusation that was being made that Labour was riven with anti-Semites when the reality was that there were very, very few uh, people who held those views inside the Labour Party. And there is no anti-Semitic crisis inside the Labour Party, nor is the one actually in the country as a whole. Uh, the Labour Party has had a long and proud record, actually, of fighting racism, but 
Unfortunately, all that was ignored and uh, the smears continued. And uh, as a consequence of that, the, the Labour saw its key and uh, most effective activists being thrown out of the party. And this left then Jeremy exposed. I'm reminded of the Pastor Niemöller uh, poem when they said, you know, first they came for the communist and I did not speak out because I wasn't a communist. And then they came for the trade unionists and I didn't speak out because I wasn't a trade unionist. And it goes on and finishes up by saying, then they came for me and there was nobody left to speak out for me. And that was really, I think, where, where Jeremy found himself in that situation when Keir Starmer suspended him. So I think the Labour Party is indeed in terminal decline. And there was an opportunity, uh, as I say, when Jeremy became the leader and they didn't seize that opportunity. Jeremy, I think, under his leadership, the Labour Party booked the trend that we've seen uh, across Europe of sort of social democratic parties uh, actually falling into the sort of pasocification uh, situation where the PASOC uh, social democratic party in Greece sort of, uh, kind of virtually disappeared uh, from its former uh, dominant position in the country and was replaced by other, other left parties. And that's been replicated elsewhere. And that trend was being booked, I think, under Jeremy. I think we're now seeing the same fate that has befallen other left-wing parties across Europe who just simply haven't really moved with the times. They bought into, the problem has been, they bought into the, well, bought into really the European project, but worse than that, they bought into the neoliberal status quo. People are desperate for an alternative to the kind of globalised neoliberal system, which has seen inequality rise exponentially, it's seen poverty on the increase, it's seen good skilled jobs being offshored to low-wage economies. This is a, something which has afflicted uh, this country. And I note as well in the same article that I, I referenced earlier, George, where we see the likes of uh, Rachel Reeves now, the new shadow chancellor, talking about a by British uh, campaign and, and taking advantage of the opportunities that now are available to Britain outside the European Union, no longer subject to the uh, state aid rules and so on. Uh, and these are the things that we should have been saying, and indeed people like me were saying, actually, uh, when Jeremy Corbyn was still the leader, but people like Rachel Reeves and uh, Sir Keir Starmer, um, you know, got onto the uh, Remaniac bandwagon uh, and used that really as, as a way of further driving a further wedge, I think, uh, between uh, Jeremy Corbyn and, uh, the, uh, and the people in the country. Well, they called us you know, nativists for election. demanding. We were the, called nativists and, and British better, nationalists. I mean, you know, to cling on to Batley and Spend by the majority, I think it was two, 323, to lose 16,000 votes in three short years is a pretty dire performance. And I think you said yourself, George, in your opening remarks, that if that performance was repeated across the country, Labour would end up with around 100 MPs. I think now what we need to be doing is regrouping uh, those of us outside the Labour Party and building, like the Workers' Party has done, uh, and work together uh, to build that alternative. I think there is an appetite for that. Uh, and I think uh, the world is our oyster now. And uh, if we can actually work together, then I'm confident that we can build an alternative. And I think what the Workers' Party, what you demonstrated in, even though you didn't win, uh, in Batley and Spen, is another alternative is possible. There is an alternative yeah. to the two-party duopoly, you know, this uh, political duopoly, which has uh, dominated for so long now. And is, that's well, only, yeah. it's really only uh, an Anglo, an Anglo-sphere thing, Yes, we need Chris. to go a little bit further, and you mentioned the, the dirty tricks 
that uh, you were subjected to, and who knows, were those dirty tricks uh, not in play, that if the outcome might have been very well, quite so. Uh, but this two-party, this uh, duopoly, say, Chris, I think there is a huge hope for us now. This uh, this duopoly is very much uh, an Anglosphere thing. Of course, on the European uh, continent, on the mainland of the European continent, it's normal. Uh, in the Netherlands, where my wife comes from, I mean, there's a pensioner's party, there's a pet lover's party, there's a Trotskyite party, there's a Green Party, there's of every shade of social and Christian uh, Democrat in the parliament. Uh, it, it's not a natural thing, uh, a two-party state. But let me, ask you, let me ask you about inside the Labour Party. Uh, Peter Mandelson, who has been ubiquitous over the last six months as a Labour spokesman for Keir Starmer. I'm not sure why they've picked him, uh, but he is. Uh, he was effectively calling uh, for the uh, rooting out of still more Labour Party members, implicitly including the deputy leader, Angela Rayner. How, do you think that is a runner? People voted for him. In huge numbers, and why inspired so many people that agenda inspired so many people to support the Labour Party and join the Labour Party? Were it not for the saboteurs inside the Labour Party, then I think we would have gone on and, and won that election. But uh, I think the Labour Party is, is a lost cause, frankly. I know some people are clinging on to them. hope somehow that it could mm. be recovered, mm. but you know, I think they recognize that they came close, those that mm. dominate inside the Labour mm. Party, to what they would perceive as a disaster. Chris, Jeremy, uh, Corbyn, Jeremy Corbyn, the <laughs> Labour government coming to power. Yeah. Uh, Chris, it, it seems you can't uh, hear me, uh, so we'll come back to you, but let's take a call on this subject. Uh, Amar in Batley. Go ahead, Amar. How are you, George? Good, thank you. Right, so I was on, obviously, last night, Sky News, listening in to... The ballots come in, the Man and Sky News talk, and it was obviously very biased towards just the Labour Party. I did not see much mention of you whatsoever in that. Uh -huh. I only saw Labour and Conservatives. Mm. What about George Galloway? Mm. No mention whatsoever. So I just wanted to bring that up to any of your viewers in America, Britain, wherever that George Galway was not mentioned in any mainstream media, which is, I think, a very, very significant point to make as to the fact that you didn't win that by-election. Yeah, but it's especially significant because despite that, I got 22% of the vote. Exactly. Which is why I want to bring up another point, that if you're still stuck in them old positions where it's Conservatives or Labour, I think it's time you change your mind. Because exactly. There's change to come. Two cheeks. There are new parties waiting. Two cheeks, Amar, of the same backside. Thanks uh, very exactly. much for that call. Here's some social media on Labour. Uh, Labour is 50 shades of woke. People are fed up with ID politics and social liberalism. And Kevin Rathbone says it's easier to imagine the end of the world than it is to imagine the end of capitalism. Capitalism may, of course, bring about the end of the world, but leave that aside, Kevin. Rockstar says the picture of the piles of ballots on the tables would indicate the Tories won. 
And John Average says it's not who votes that matters, it's who counts the votes and controls the media. And Bushman says Labour are playing the same tricks as the dirty Democrats. And Robin Hunter says the world is one big con. Good to expose it, George. And S.C. Bath says we all know democracy is a scam. Well, as Mr. Churchill said, or to paraphrase him, democracy may be a scam, but it's the only thing we've got. And Mike Rangel says this voting stuff that went on in the UK and New York recently is out of hand. And tour guide said Enoch Powell predicted that Labour would reject the working class and become a Liberal Party. And David Short says, George, you know the game. You're a seasoned politician. You either got to catch up, dude, or let go. Not sure what that means, David, but you could always call the show and let us know. Chris is uh, back on the line. We fixed that problem. Chris, I wanted to ask uh, Peter Mandelson, who for some reason has, uh, has re-emerged uh, from uh, his uh, um, chrysalis uh, as, as the spokesman for the Labour Party, as the spokesman for Keir Starmer. He seemed to say over the last couple of days uh, that uh, actually there needed to be still more uh, expulsions and rooting out uh, of people like thee and me and people well to the right of us, including, it seemed, uh, the deputy leader of the Labour Party, Angela Rayner, who uh, the Times reported uh, Starmer's allies wanted uh, to be sacked. Do you think there's anything in this? Is there another purge coming? Well, I don't think the purge has ever stopped, George. And, and actually, I was making some of those points when I was obviously just speaking into uh, into cyberspace. You no, you weren't, here. actually. You, you ah. oh, Everything you said was heard. It's just ah. that I didn't hear it. Oh, I see. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> okay. Um, well, good. I'm pleased then, uh, that, that, that you heard uh, uh, some of my remarks. And, and I, I don't think that the purge has, uh, has ever stopped. I think it will continue. What I think uh, New Labour are determined to do is ensure that there could be no repetition of uh, a potential Corbyn-style uh, leadership coming to the fore again. And they're going to do everything, in my opinion, in their power to completely crush it, to ensure that uh, there is no, ever, no prospect of the ever re-emerging. And uh, I think a lot of people are clinging to the notion that uh, somehow the Labour Party is recoverable, but I frankly can't see how that is possible because they're going to change the rules to make it impossible to do that. And we know how ruthless they are. Uh, we've seen what they've done to long-standing members of the of the party. People have given their lives to the Labour Party, what they've done to the leader or former leader of the party, Jeremy Corbyn. And there are no depths to which they will not stoop. And, and when we saw that, frankly, with the sort of tactics that were deployed against you in the, in the by-election and... Uh, they're determined, I think, to crush any semblance of, of a... Sort of so, Jer Jeremy Corbyn's never going to be readmitted, is he? Not if they're talking no. about sacking Angela Rayner. Why would they bring him back? Absolutely not. I mean, you know, Jeremy was reinstated, actually, to the Labour Party by our National Executive Committee panel who, who looked at it, uh, and then he was uh, refused the whip by the 
leader of the party, Sir Keir Starmer, refused to reinstate the whip. So Jeremy's in this rather sort of curious position, a sort of a twilight zone as a Labour MP who's not a Labour MP. He's a member of the Labour Party but uh, and an MP, but he's not actually a Labour MP. It's a rather curious state of affairs. And uh, no, I mean, they're very ruthless and uh, seem to be uh, operating a kind of Machiavellian approach, really, where they're determined to completely destroy what they perceive as their enemy. And sadly, I mean, had, had they worked together, you know, I think we'd be talking about a Labour government now. Yeah, quite. Now, uh, finally, finally, what's the meaning of Mandelson uh, becoming the frontline big occasion spokesman for Labour now? Does that mean that the Blairites are not just operating, you know, the strings from behind, but they're actually moving their tanks uh, onto the front lawn? Oh, uh, well, I think that's absolutely the case. Uh, we've even heard of prospects of um, space being made for Tony Blair come back. I mean, I'll believe it when I see it. But uh, no, I think it's pretty clear that, that, that that's the, uh, that's the game, name of the game right now. And, uh, you know, you don't have to be a sophisticated political analyst to recognise, you know, who is pulling the strings right now. As we've heard, Mandelson uh, is uh, front and centre. Uh, and uh, talking in, in uh, I think, pretty egregious terms, actually, about uh, the left of the, of the party. And frankly, all the things that they accuse uh, people like ourselves of doing, they are past masters at. Uh, it's it's, it's all welling in, it, in, in its, uh, its tone, actually. Or welling, indeed. We know, we know what we're fighting. Yeah, yeah. Chris, thank you. We, we uh, thank you very much, indeed, for joining us. Sorry about the technical hitch. Earlier, uh, trust me, everything you said was heard. T minus 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 0. Ignition. Lift off. Lift off. 30 minutes after the hour. We need to uh, acclimatize the public uh, for the introduction of extraterrestrials because come to the conclusion at this point if they're going to come they are going to come soon back in the late 60s and early 70s they actually saw the softer land in front of them or pass by in new york or go overhead it went in front of my eyes up and turned into a, what looked like a star way up in the sky they said the same line that you just made, and it was amazing. It is an awful waste of space if, if we are all if that there is. If we're all that there is, exactly. Have you ever seen any of these phenomena? I have seen um, energy entities. One looked like a massive jellyfish. The other one looked like a massive centipede. Well, you had me up to that point. Now I just think you're stark raving mad. Is football coming home? Will England win the Euros? A, yes, 56%. B, no, 37%. C, anyone but 7%. That'll be our Scottish uh, audience uh, on that. Now, uh, my good friend, Tom McGregor, is an American abroad. He's an American in China. He lives there. He has a family there. He is not a communist, that I can testify to, but he has a point of view on the achievements of the Chinese Communist Party on this, their 100th anniversary. 
He joins us now. No video, alas, only on audio. Tom, uh, always welcome to the show. Yes, it's, it's good to uh, talk to you again, George. Now, Tom, um, is it a big deal, the 100th anniversary, or is the Chinese state, which isn't entirely uh, what you would think of as communist these days, playing down the centenary? No, they definitely didn't play down. Play it down. Uh, they had a lot of uh, in Beijing, where I where I live and work. They had uh, major performances. Uh, Chinese President Xi Jinping delivered a a, a major uh, speech. Uh, there were a lot of people in Beijing to celebrate. A lot of activities all over the country. There were fireworks in many Chinese cities. Uh, it was a, a major deal for the Chinese to celebrate this 100th. Uh, CPC anniversary. Now, the Chinese Communist Party suffered almost unbelievable uh, hardship in that hundred years. They, uh, they, they fought the Japanese invader, a murderous invader, almost of unprecedented scale, a virtual holocaust in China at the hands of the Japanese invaders. Uh, they had to fight the, um, their one-time ally, the nationalist uh, leader, Kayan Kashek. They had to uh, fight a civil war. Uh, they had to go on a very, very long march. Uh, but they triumphed in 1949. Uh, what would your report card be for the CPC uh, at this 100th uh, centenary? Well, it's definitely a changed party from the beginning. Uh, this this uh, idea that uh, CPC is full-blown Marxist is is not the case. The, what they are is is you know socialism with Chinese characteristics, which could have many different interpretations. Uh, Deng Xiaoping and his reforms in opening up have uh, transformed China, and I believe that for people to really understand the China of today. It's about the reform and opening up more than anything else. So you have this combination of communism, socialism, capitalism. Uh, you know, it, it depends on what the interpretation is and how the government interprets the times and how to make adjustments for that. So for right now, the, the current adjustments that are being made is you have this scenario where there's a lot of anti-China sentiments outside the country. And now they're becoming a little bit more localized in their uh, economy and also localized in their way of thinking because they realize that maybe other countries are, are giving China a much harder time than they would like. But, you know, it's just the way it is. And they're just making adjustments to it at this moment. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I mean, politically speaking, uh, it remains a communist country. Its flag sure. is red. It's uh, a, a one-party state. Uh, yeah. It is uh, organized in uh, the Marxist-Leninist uh, style. Uh, but economically, it is uh, open to uh, external uh, investment, uh, foreign companies relocating there. Uh, it is open to capitalism. It's open for business uh, to capitalism. And no one's ever been this way before. Uh, ontologically speaking, how do you characterize it? Well, I mean, what you just described is actually I consider a good thing. Uh, the fact that their economy is so open is why many people are in China have become much more prosperous and they've like, for example, I've taken a, a vacation to Ningbo, and and it's just beautiful area, and you see a lot of beautiful houses, and uh, and the people around are, are are making much more money than what they had in a long time ago. So these economic changes are absolutely necessary, and has really helped to make uh, China a much better and stronger country. And I, I believe it's because of Deng Xiaoping and his his efforts to do reform and opening up. Of course, there were, uh, Mao Zedong had uh, many great achievements. If not for him, there would be no modern China. Uh, the fascists would not have been defeated, the Japanese invaders. Uh, the uh, Kaan Ka-shek nationalists would not have been supplanted. If not for Mao, uh, great leaps forward took place under Mao, but also uh, many disastrous turns politically. Uh, the, the period of the 1960s uh, were periodic and sometimes violent. Outbursts of, of ultra-leftism uh, began to hold China back. Uh, and of course, as you say, Deng Xiaoping made a very dramatic turn. Uh, who is re remembered most fondly uh, in China nowadays, in your observation. What's the current thinking on Mao? What's the current thinking on Dong? What's the current thinking on President Xi? Is President Xi being elevated to these, the level of these other two? What's the pecking order? Well, I mean, there's all these talk about Xi Jinping as, as this next stage of Mao or or Ding, uh, what I what I see instead is that yes, uh, Xi Jinping is is has some popularity in China, and is respected. I think what you have is a case of uh, a lot of people are criticizing China, so the Chinese feel that they have to defend their leadership, similar to what you have seen in Russia with when Putin was strongly criticized by outsiders. The Russians sort of rushed to his defense. Uh, the Chinese are a little bit similar towards Xi. So rather this label of, you know, the Chinese don't really, they know their history. They know how the chi China was founded. 
but they're very forward thinking. They would prefer to talk more about the future, uh, the current issues of the t today and tomorrow rather than talk much about its history. Uh, they just want to move forward, and, and Xi Jinping is the same type of person. Of course, he does talk a lot about uh, Marxism and, and all that because that's expected of Chinese government leaders. They're supposed to talk about the history. But uh, the, the overall feeling I get is that most people who are Chinese just want to focus on the now and the tomorrow. Now, there are points of tension. Uh, the West is working on those. Hong Kong was the most e egregious example, uh, but uh, Taiwan is another. Uh, the Uyghur question uh, is a third. Uh, Tibet, a fourth. The Falun Gong, a fifth. Uh, the uh, lack of democracy and so on, a sixth. Um, are these pressure points working? Is China firmly in control on all these fronts? Yeah, it's not going to impact China's ability to uh, the CPC, the Chinese government. It will have no impact on their ability to to have popularity in China as well as to continue function. Uh, what what's what? Whenever it's perceived that outsiders are attacking China, the Chinese will just simply think, "Well, we just have to support our 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 people even more." Uh, it's not, you know, these these forces that Biden is trying to do, that Boris Johnson is working on, and sometimes the EU follows up with whatever Washington is is telling them to do against China. Uh, this stuff is is really not going to work in the long term. I think what's going to happen eventually is when the UK economy, the US economy, the EU economy starts having problems, they're going to have to rush to China to get some help there. And then, you know, they'll start changing their minds. For the time being, it looks like they don't, they feel like they don't need China economically, so they can sort of do some pushback. Uh, but the Chinese will just wait it out, and then sooner or later, they'll come back to the Chinese, hoping for them to rescue their economies. I mean, what do you think is the real reason for these uh, cause celebras in the West? Uh, it's Jealousy. Really, it's Jealousy. Jealousy. Uh, they see, yeah, they see China rising. They see China being successful with its economy. I see it firsthand. I mean, the fact is, is uh, I was here. I came here 11 years ago. It's a major difference uh, 11 years ago from now. Just economically, uh, standard of living alone. I've done much better. Uh, many people who've come to China have done much better, but it's been the Chinese who've done much better most of all. So people see this and they're like, oh, my gosh, how, how could they have done this without this democracy? Uh, that's impossible. We were always saying democracy was going to rescue everything. And it's just become a shock. And it, it's, it worries that some of the, the, the democracy power players and they just want to try to make China look bad because they think that if, if people start realizing China does succeed with the China model, then it's possible other countries might follow that. And they just don't want that. Maybe they think China is covertly exporting its model uh, through the, the Belt and Road Initiative, sure. yeah. for example. Uh, okay. Is there any, I mean, I sometimes read it in some crank uh, publications sure. uh, that, yeah. uh, that Chinese imperialism is a thing. Is it? Well, there was U.S. imperialism for a long time. 
that people had concerns that U.S. imperialists were were sending their imperialist uh, ideals abroad, and now it's become the Chinese imperialism problem. Uh, the, you know, what I've sort of had this discussion of Chinese, and sometimes they do worry about this because they go, oh, my gosh, we, we try to help these other countries, and they're just so anti-China. And then I'm like, well, you know, just tell them, do they want a bridge or do they not want a bridge? If it's not going to be the Chinese to build a bridge in Nigeria, who's going to build the bridge for them? Okay, so just focus on the projects, focus on the benefits of those projects, and just so don't don't get too involved in the political debates because you do. Uh, most people are anti-China, and it's it's a hard it's hard to overcome this right now. You think they've got? I mean, they've got the biggest uh, single market anywhere, of course, because they are the biggest population in the world. They've got plenty of capital. Their economy is growing faster again than anybody else in the world. Can they uh, survive? How would they feel about a period, maybe a long period, maybe 10 or 20 year period, in which uh, really basically they are building up their domestic market. They're not selling abroad in the way that they used to. They're not buying uh, abroad in the way that they used to. Would that begin to cause some problems for the government? Well, for some time it may cause some problems because you have a lot of companies who are exporters uh, who have made a lot of money by being exporters, but uh, they'll transition. The Chinese uh, consumer market is the largest in the world. The Chinese are becoming much more wealthier, and right now there's there has been a push in the government called known as dual circulation, which is to increase domestic consumption uh, to localize the markets. So they're making adjustments, and I see, yes, there's going to be some pain points, but every there's no perfect solution for every political issue or economic issue. There's going to be some pain somewhere, but uh, I think China has been quick to figure out this anti-China thing may last longer than they expected, is a little bit stronger than they had hoped that, that, that they had anticipated. So for the time being, they're, they're, you know, now that we have the pandemic, they have a reason to close the borders and say, oh, we can't allow international travel. So during all this time, they, they can work on the localization without it becoming a, an issue of, oh my gosh, how come uh, uh, China's being left out of the foreign trade like it used to be? Well, with the pandemic, they, you know, the, the Chinese aren't going to notice that because people are still still thinking a little bit about the pandemic issues. So China is going to make its adjustments. I see it right now. The, I mean, really, the economy is doing very well right now. I don't hear sometimes you hear this that China's economy is having problems. I haven't seen it in the past few years, even when Trump was doing his trade wars and saying, oh, my gosh, the, the Chinese economy crashed by 500 oh, percent or whatever. I, I, that was just nonsense. It wasn't happening. Uh, China's economy is very successful. I see it. I don't know why people jump into this. This China is crashing. The, people like you and other reporters should be talking to me. I see the real China. I talk to ordinary Chinese people all the time. I, 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 I'm not the guy who lives in a bubble. I, I live in an ordinary China world, meeting people, seeing what's going on. And if I see problems, I'd be able to, to spot them. But right now, the economy is doing very well in China. Well, that's why we do talk to you.
Tom McGregor yeah, thank you. in Beijing. Thank you very much indeed for uh, joining us. Uh, let me uh, tell you about the podcast. Uh, it's being listened to now all around the world. Huge numbers are downloading the, as it were, compact version of the show. Uh, of course, in the UK and the US, but listen to these countries that downloaded it last week. Japan, India, Denmark, Saudi Arabia, Korea, Switzerland, UAE, and Hong Kong in China. All of those had significant audiences of last week's show. Uh, on China, Alexandros says, Tom does not understand what socialism and communism are. And Billy Kidman says, China capitalizes on people's misery. James Graham said, China's won its curtains for capitalism. And Stephen Cunningham says, China, state-controlled macroeconomy, string entrepreneurship with the microeconomy, unbeatable. The 21st century will be Chinese. The US is finished. And the truth hurts says, Mao did great leap forward because they were forced by the Russians to repay the Korean war loans or gave, give up the land. So he tried to increase productivity to repay. So many misguided Westerners. And Andy McDonald says, China controls capitalism. Capitalism controls the West. There is the difference. And Pat Brannigan says, unfortunately, the Western mind can only thin in, think in either or. The West cannot understand and. It is capitalism or socialism, not a blending of the likes the Chinese are doing. And John Smith says, oddly, it was Mao who protected China from the US turning it into Iraq. And Syndicat says, it's not jealousy, but a direct threat to the control the ruling class in the West have enjoyed for hundreds of years. And Chris Cox says, 73% of Chinese under 30s own their own home. The Chinese are better at capitalism than the West. Now, when I think of all the decades, best years of my life, really, uh, that I spent fighting uh, for uh, the Palestinian cause, uh, the performance of the government, as they call themselves, in Ramallah uh, since the killing of President Arafat has been a grave disappointment. Imagine what it must be like if you're a Palestinian. Our next guest is a man that I have been campaigning alongside since we were both kings, since we were both young men. He's still a king, the last Arab, sometimes think the only Arab journalist and writer certainly the biggest and the best followed. He is Abdul Bari Atwan, and he joins me now. Abdul Bari, greetings uh, to you. Let's start, if we may, with the miserable, melancholic, filthy killing uh, of a Palestinian journalist, not by Israel, but by the Palestinian security forces. Tell us about Nizar and what happened to him, please. 
George, it is a pleasure to be with you again. Yes, we were fighting together. Yes, you are well loved in the Middle East because you always stand with the right causes there. Uh, what happened on the West Bank, what happened actually in Hebron was extremely devastating. It was actually uh, humiliating to the Palestinian cause. The men of uh, Mahmoud Abbas, the so-called the president of the Palestinian Authority, those security men stormed the house of Nizar Banat, who is activist, who one, who the one believes in the right of the Palestinian for return, for return of their land, for the return to their land also. So they actually actually uh, stormed his house three o'clock in the morning and took him to a very obscure place. They beat them to death, actually, by iron, uh, you know, uh, roads. And it was, it was devastating. The man was killed. The man actually, his, his brain or his head actually was broken because of the torture. So the, the Palestinians now are really so angry, so asking for Abbas to step down. He is not accepted anymore as a president of the Palestinian people. He is coordinating uh, with the Israeli forces and order against the Palestinians. It was a president. We never seen uh, a liberation organization actually collaborating with the occupiers against their own people. So I believe Abbas days are extremely numbered and there are demonstrations in most of the Palestinian cities now calling for his actually step down. He is not acceptable. He's been there for far, far too long. Uh, you and I both knew him when he was a young man. He was uh, at uh, Arafat's side. He was a technocrat at Arafat's side, but he was never a leader. How has he managed to stay in power so long without election and without any kind of leadership quality at all? The magic word, George, is Israeli and the American. The Israeli are actually protecting him. They are uh, yani giving him the authority and uh, he coordinating uh, security-wise with them. The Americans are giving him the money. So the Israeli protection, the American money actually brought him to power and kept him on power and enforced him on the Palestinian people. This man actually, he is against any kind of resistance up to the occupation, the Israeli occupation. Actually, he is protecting the Israeli settlers by his about 40,000 of his security forces. So he is there because the American want him there. He is there because the Israeli want him there. He, he is there because, you know, the Palestinian people don't want him at all. That's, that's the reason. This is the magic word. Unfortunately, this man, I believe, imposed on the Palestinian people. Uh, there are, you know, a hidden hands who put him in power, even during Arafat uh, time. They imposed him on Arafat in order to be a prime minister first, and then to topple Arafat. Arafat was poisoned, and there are a lot of actually fingers pointing to the Israeli being behind his uh, putting poison for in, in, in his body, you know, some sort of, you know, a razor or some sort of, 
يعني the very 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 sophisticated poison. The demonstrations you talk of are demanding that he step down. First of all, what's the chance that he will? And secondly, what would happen if he did? No, George, this man actually is buying time. He is in Haiti in his 85 years of age now. And he is, you know, a, a, a sort of uh, all, all kind of, uh, you know, illness is actually affecting him now. He is suffering from a lot of illness, to be honest. So, but, so he is trying to stay in power as long as he can. Uh, whether he will stay, I, I personally, I doubt it. There is, a, you know, 80% or 85% of the Palestinians, they don't want him to be in power. But I, as I said, the American want him, want him. The Israeli want him. This is, this is the problem. But at the end, I believe, you know, the Arab Spring removed a lot of dictators. And I believe Abbas, who actually uh, canceled the election in order to stay in power, he knew that if any, any sort of legislative election will depose him completely and his authority. So he canceled it. But I believe now the Palestinian people will never accept him again in power. He must leave. And all the entourage around him, corrupt entourage also, must leave. The Palestinian people cannot actually accept this, especially after they resist the Israeli attacks on Gaza. After they prove that they are actually, they can defend themselves. And the resistance is the only way actually to solve the Palestinian problem, to regain the Palestinian rights. Now he is the leader, not just of the authority, but of uh, the PLO uh, and uh, the party which dominates the PLO, which I always supported. And I think you, although you never support any party, were not unsympathetic to uh, Fatah. Uh, he's the leader of all of these things. Is there, you know, any, he, is there any new uh, people, any new leadership coming through? Uh, yeah, George, uh, you know, this man is the president of the Palestinian army, the president of the PLO, the president of the president of authority, he's president of everything. He has at least at least six or seven uh, major jobs between his hands. So he actually consolidated all the power in, on, and he puts all the power uh, between his hands. And he has entourage who actually say yes men. All of them agree with him simply because he got the security forces about 40,000 and they are actually uh, carry out any, any, any orders from him. And also he has the money. Fatah, unfortunately, actually, which was actually a leading uh, Palestinian liberation organization, and they gave a lot of martyrs for, for the actually to, to uh, help to solve, to regain the Palestinian rights. It is now in a disarray. Now we have three Fatah, not just one. Fatah, uh, um, Mahmoud Abbas, Fatah Marwan Al-Barghouti, the prisoner the, uh, in the Israeli jails. He is a very nationalistic and he is the Mandela of Palestine. And then Fatah Mohammed Dahlan. So Abbas realized that his Fatah, 
is fragmented. Fatah cannot actually lead the Palestinian people, cannot be the leader of the, or the, got the majority on the PLO. So that's why actually he is now trying to, uh, to freeze every Palestinian action but the people in Palestine saying enough is enough. We cannot actually accept this man to decide our future. We want to go back to the resistance, all type of resistance against the, uh, the Israeli, against the settler. But Israel should actually pay a heavy price for its occupation of the Palestinian land. Now, uh, Mandela did quite well as the leader behind bars of the African National mm. Congress. Mm. Uh, why don't they go for Marwan Balguti, who seems to me the only leader amongst them? Yes, George. Now, uh, Marwan Balguti is very, very popular. And actually, when he decided to set up some sort of a party to represent him on the legislative election, Abbas realized that he is in danger, Abbas in danger, Fatah in danger. Who, so he decided actually to cancel the election. Now Marwan Barghouti is gaining ground. The problem is he is in prison. Uh, Hamas, as I knew that, when they uh, talked with the Israeli about prisoner exchange, actually his name was the top of Hamas list. So if actually this kind of uh, prisoner exchange deal is going to work, Barghouti will be released. And I wouldn't be surprised if he does exactly what Mandela did for South Africa. So let us pray for him to be released. He is a very honest man. He is a very clean man. And he is very nationalistic. And he is also uh, the type of Arafat leadership, maybe more, more actually enlightened than Arafat. So if Marwan Barghouti released, I think he will reunify the Palestinian people behind him and uh, the Israeli will find themselves under a huge pressure to uh, listen to the international uh, community to, to uh, carry out the, the international legalization resolutions. So that this is the only way. So I believe Marwan al-Barghouti could be actually the dark horse who will change the whole scene on the Palestinian uh, cause of the Palestinian territories. Finally, uh, just a personal reflection, uh, Abdul Bari. In the 1970s, you and I together were talking about the fight for a secular democratic state, which would be so different from the Arab dictatorships all around. It ended up in the form of Abbas and this authority, just as dirty as any Arab dictatorship anywhere else, didn't it? You know, yeah, you are absolutely right, George. We all actually fought and struggle for actually an, an independent, secular, democratic Palestinian state for everybody, for the Jews, for the Christian, for the Muslims, 
for the Arabs, for everybody in, in, in Palestine to live together, coexist with each other. And unfortunately, the West, in, which they claim that they are secular and they are democratic, and, and were against, was against this kind of formula. So they convinced Arafat, they look, you know, the division of Palestine to have a, a Palestinian state, independent state, and 20% only of historic Palestine. This is the only work which will work, actually, the only formula which will work. So Arafat accepted because he has nothing, and the, the West put a huge pressure on him. So he changed the formula of independent, democratic, secular state to a little state on the West Bank in, in Gaza. What, what, what happened, actually? The Israeli uh, took that 80% and then, you know, uh, again, took about 30% of the West Bank. So nothing left for the Palestinians. And they settled more than 80, 800,000 settlers on the West Bank. Nothing left for the Palestinians to establish his, their own state, independent state. Now, I think we are back again. The Palestinians will never accept the two-state solution because there is no land to build a, or to, to establish a state on this. So uh, what, what, what is happening now? One-state solution is the most acceptable solution among the Palestinian people. Now we are back again, George. All of us, and you are one of us, to actually to reach this dream to achieve this dream, to have one state solution, like what happened in South Africa, live together, uh, Muslim, Christian, Jews, and equal footing, and, you know, give a good example of equality to the international community, to everybody in the world. We are not actually racist. Well, and we don't want actually to, yeah, to deprive the Jews who were in Palestine before the Israel was established. And even, even we can talk and reach a, a, a solution or a formula for everybody. But one state solution, the Palestinian, all the Palestinians, to live together with the Israeli, with the Jews, with the Christian, with everybody in, in Palestine. This is, this is, I believe, the most acceptable solution. But we have to remember that the Israeli, they passed a, a, a law saying, the so-called so national law, to make Palestine only for the Jews. And the Palestinian should have nothing at all, should be a citizen or 10th class citizen, even not a second the class citizen. This is the, this is the, the obstacle in front of the peace of secular democratic state solution. Abdul Bari Atwan, always a pleasure to talk to you, even on unhappy occasions like this one. Thank you very much for joining us. Hey you, do you want to know more of what's happening in the world right now? Of course you do. But getting to the heart of the story, well, that's going to take some hard work. That's why here at the Mother of All Talk Shows, we've created that program just for you. Hosted by one of the world's most sagacious minds. Get a perspective, an education on stories from all around the world, dissected and discussed with you. Join our debate, vote in our polls on Twitter, tweet a question to George or call in now to give us your perspective on the stories the rest of the world simply isn't talking about. Join the College of Knowledge, where there are no tuition fees. 
hosted by one of the world's greatest orators, the mother of all talk shows, with George Galloway. Let's make sense of the world together. Is football coming home? Will England win the Euros? Seems stuck on 57%. Over a thousand people have voted now. 57% say yes, 35% say no. And uh, the Scottish vote has gone up one to 8%. You've got time to... (laughs) You've got time uh, still to affect that balance. I've got some calls. Let's take... uh, Mohammed in Manchester. Go ahead, Mohammed. Good evening, George. How are you? By the grace of God, I'm good. Alhamdulillah. It was good to hear. It's good to hear, George. Thank you. Yeah, George, I was tuning in today, um, and I heard at the beginning of the show, um, you were asking if China has the best system in the world. Yeah. Um, my, one of my issues with China is the Uyghur genocide, so the Islamophobic oppression and crimes against humanity um, against the Uyghurs. Um, and uh, so that's a, a straightaway red flag for me. Uh, I know they're part of the UN. Um, so, you know, obviously, uh, in Islam, we know that if you see an evil, you should try and change it if you have. If you can't change it if you hand, your hands are tied. Speak out against it, so change it with your tongue. If you, can't, if you can't speak out against it, then the least you can do is try and change it with your heart. And uh, that's the weakest of faith. So I'm just, you know, my position of calling today is really just to try and have any impact on, you know, um, being against oppression and injustice and trying to change it, George. You've, you've got a lot of experience in politics. Surely, George, you would have an answer as to how we could um, have a conversation which could leverage that slightly even. Well, I do have uh, conversations with China on this subject uh, at, at all levels. But first, I need you to uh, justify your claim uh, that there is a genocide against Uyghurs. You mean there's a systematic attempt to murder them all? Oppression isn't just murder, George. It, it, I don't want to go into the brutalities of all the oppression that's going on. You can, if you go on YouTube, the very first video that shows up when you type in Uyghurs is actually from The Economist. But, um, well, that would be the holy grail then, Mohammed, if it's in The yeah, Economist. I mean, you see, this, yeah, is, I mean, uh, this is the problem. I think that people who think like you are relying on the very sources uh, that told you Saddam Hussein was feeding people into human shredders and had weapons of mass destruction under his bed. I'm willing to bet you didn't believe that propaganda. Why are you believing this propaganda from the same sources? I've actually been to China, George, and um, they were accommodating for group of Muslims, including myself, to go and pray in, in, in areas. Um, and in, in the area that I went to in China, near Hong Kong, they were very accommodating, and I can't fault them in anything done towards me personally. But these, these people, these um, Uyghurs, or if we were to look across the world, it's not just in China, this oppression goes on for God knows what reason, if it's financial, for you know, Satanistic reasons. I'm going to speak my mind, George. I'm not going to hold back. You know, there's corruption in the world. You know this, George. And I'm not going to compromise my hereafter at the, expect, at the expense of buying this life. And that's what some people are doing. And the, the, China is part of the UN. And the other countries are silent no, about uh, this. Uh, you're, just, you're rather avoiding my question. What is your definition of this genocide that you say is taking place against the Uyghurs? You've already conceded implicitly that they're not actually trying to murder them. So what do you mean? system of Islam of their Islamic identity by um, detaining them and trying to brainwash them. 
kidnapping children from their parents and detaining them. Um, and what's your source? You know, of, what's your source of those allegations? The same source that you have, George. I remember you getting on a ship and going to see it yourself. I have been to see it myself. That was a very foolish. Not, not, that's a very foolish assumption of yours. I told you that I discussed this question with China uh, often. Uh, now we've agreed that uh, they're not being killed. In fact, their population is greatly increasing. In fact, they are permitted to have three children, uh, whilst Han families are allowed to have only two children. Uh, you're not going to pretend that there are not more mosques in one province of Xinjiang, where the Uyghurs live, than there is in the entire United States of America. You're not going to pretend that there are not more Muslims in China than there are people in the European Union. So where are you getting this genocide word from? George, in China, in Yemen, in Syria, in Palestine, are you telling me people are not being sacrificed, trying, you know, that satanistically trying to be slipped with their Islamic that's identity? Twice, that's twice you've used the word satanistically. That makes me yeah. nervous, makes me yeah. nervous. Uh, what are you trying to say? They're trying to strip of strip people of their Islamic identity. Not, Islamic we've already agreed, I think, and you were praying in one, uh, that there are more mosques in China than almost anywhere else in the world. How is that yeah. stripping people of their Islamic identity? Because it's not sacrificing one group of people and calling it reform to, to justify it, to give luxuries of built mosques for others and justifying it as reform. Well, you it's argue a very that strange form of genocide that uh, boosts the population of Muslims, builds record numbers of mosques for them to uh, pray in, and yet still be accused of stripping them of their Islamic identity. Here's the problem, Mohammed, and I would have thought it was better for you to, to be frank about this. The only people in prison in uh, Xinjiang amongst the Uyghurs are those that are attached to uh, the Al-Qaeda affiliate, the East Turkestan Liberation Organization. Now, every country fights Al-Qaeda, and so they should, shouldn't they? George? This is the same problem which is going on in Yemen and in Syria and in Palestine. Why do you, you keep know... changing the subject? No, is, no, because is I there Al -Qaeda? I I... Is there Al Qaeda? I'm happy to talk no, about all these other me. things. Don't, asso don't associate me with names. I don't know who Al Qaeda is, so don't associate me with a name. You don't know who. Oh, 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 oh. No. oh. You well, don't know. You are Mohammed in Manchester, and you don't know who Al Qaeda is. Yes, I, you're, why are you putting my name or my, why are you connecting with them in any way? I haven't brought up Al-Qaeda, so why have you brought I've them up? I've brought it up because yeah, that's why? who what? the Chinese state is fighting. And, and every state Every state is fighting. Yeah, it's a corrupt world, George. It's a corrupt world. You know it's a corrupt world. You're a slightly, how shall I put it? Confused man, Mohammed. I think we've taken this uh, far enough. Let's go to Michael in Sydney.
Go ahead, Michael. Yeah, hi, George. I'd like to talk about um, two things, basically. First, I'd like to respond to Muhammad and okay. um, back you up there, George. There's actually um, more mosques in Xinjiang per head of population for Muslims than there is anywhere else in Earth. Including Saudi uh, Arabia. Or, including Saudi Arabia. Uh, in, in Syria, a lot from over there is the 10,000 Turkmenistan Uyghur um, terrorists currently in... Um, yeah, from um, near, nearby China. They're in Syria. I yeah, wonder how they yeah. got there. wonder how they got there, yeah, Michael. Through, through Turkey, through Afghanistan, probably airlifted into Turkey for, by the US. But anyway, it's a different story. Not a lot of people know that China actually borders Afghanistan, but it does. It has a small border with them and a large border with Pakistan. Um, but also um, the fact that um, um, 34 Muslim countries signed a letter not long ago actually saying they would prefer the way China deals with terrorism to the way the US deals with it. And recently in the UN, there was a resolution to try to condemn China um, and say they were committing genocide in Xinjiang. And um, many Muslim countries voted with China to um, against the resolution. Yeah, uh, of course, uh, uh, Prime Minister Imran Khan of Pakistan just last week uh, denounced these foolish, uh, wild accusations of genocide. We, we now discover what genocide, we discover from Muhammad eventually, after pressing him, what they mean by genocide. It's not killing, it's not suppressing the population, it's increasing the population and increasing the number of mosques and Islamic institutions. That's the strangest kind of genocide I've ever heard of. Yeah, it is, George. It is. And it's just like used as a cudgel um, by the US um, to basically um, tr try to cast dispersions on the great progress made by China um, over the last hundred years. And I, like, you know, like you said, there have been some hiccups. But I'd also like to report about um, the sort of things. I mean, the misreporting of Xi Jinping's speech. I thought your, your guest from CCTV would have brought it up before. Um, on CGTN, which is the English um, state media they put out through YouTube, I watched Xi Jinping's speech live. And um, the interpreter, um, the English interpreter, actually said uh, not that they will, will bash their head against, will bloody their head um, by bashing it against a steel wall. He actually said they will run up against a steel wall forged by 1.4 billion Chinese in fire. And um, secondly, um, in regards to um, Tiananmen Square, recently in Australia, it came out on the ABC probably about three weeks ago, um, that um, the, um, the propaganda about tanks running over people in Tiananmen Square wasn't actually true. Uh, there were some people shot, um, but there weren't people run over by tanks. And it was reported on the ABC. It was all propaganda put out through the CIA and, and other Western sources. And it's it actually a total load of baloney. It never actually happened. There, we were, we, no one was run over by any tanks in Tiananmen Square. There was a mass uh, demonstration uh, yes. of students in Tiananmen Square. Uh, it was uh, dispersed with, with force. Uh, they say that some people were killed, though I've never seen any pictures of dead people from Tiananmen Square, which doesn't mean they weren't killed, uh, but the numbers were small uh, by comparison yeah. with, say, um, the Kent State University uh, shootings yeah. of students in America rising up against the, uh, the Vietnam War, or perhaps more apt, uh, the shootings of Palestinians that occur 
uh, on a regular basis. I'm against uh, uh, the shooting of people anywhere at any time. Uh, I think that China did not have to use live ammunition in Tiananmen Square. I think that uh, the situation uh, amongst Uyghurs where there is an Al-Qaeda affiliate active recruiting people, conducting acts of terrorism, uh, has to be handled better uh, by the Chinese authorities. I give, and I've given this to China. Uh, the, uh, the example uh, of uh, internment in Northern Ireland, uh, which was an attempt by the British to clamp down on republicanism in Northern Ireland and ended up vastly increasing the numbers of Republicans in Northern Ireland and uh, educating them in revolutionary techniques uh, in the internment camps. So I'm not an apologist for China in the sense that I think China has made many mistakes uh, in its history and may still be making some of them now. But what I won't accept is a US-led attempt to slander China for the purposes of breaking it up, slowing it down, weakening it, uh, making it less of a competitor uh, to the US. And I'm sorry uh, that so many people have fallen for uh, this kind of propaganda offensive, coming from people who don't give a toss about suffering of Muslims in Yemen or in Afghanistan or in Libya or in Palestine or in Iraq or in Kashmir or anywhere else in the world, but are apparently deeply concerned about Muslims in China. Go figure. Thanks for that call. Let's go to John in Dorset. Go ahead, John. Hello, George. Uh, just to change the subject, if I may. Yes. Um, just to bring up a small incident that occurred recently uh, up in Batley. Was it a grammar school or a secondary school up there? Gra the, you mean and, the teacher uh, in the grammar school, yeah. Yeah, yeah, just a teacher up there. I mean, just to, just between you and me, what you, would you advise that teacher you, to do? Just between you, me and the well, world. Well, you and I. You and I. <laughs> well, if, if, what would you if, advise uh, him to do? If I had been elected as the Member of Parliament, I would have walked yes. him back into the school. Uh, yes. But I don't know what will happen now that I am not uh, the member of parliament. He's been badly <laughs> let <Nor> down. <laughs> He's been badly uh, let down uh, by uh, the Labour authority that employs him, uh, by the Labour MP as was, now the mayor of West Yorkshire, uh, by the... Uh, local labor political class, they ran away and abandoned them. They forfeited uh, all uh, leadership of the public's response to allegations which turned out not even to have been accurate. Uh, no, this, well, man has, this man has been uh, given uh, very difficult cards to handle by the authority that employed him the head teacher that was his uh, line manager and by the uh, local political class. If I had been the MP, I would have resolved it very quickly. With a question to the Prime Minister on Wednesday, 
to meet, asking for a meeting with the Prime Minister about it. I would have laid out uh, my uh, plan for resolving it, and I believe that it would have worked, and I would have walked in to the school with them. John, last word to you. Well, it was just, uh, um, you know, I, I, I totally agree with your uh, sophisticated way of resolving uh, a, a quite a life and death situation. But I, I do think that by marching that poor bloke back into a school, um, I, don't, I think that would inflame it, to be honest. That's, I, not, I if I, not, not if it was me that was marching him in, no, it wouldn't. Well, I, I, I just think it's an ongoing situation. I mean, I, I, I can remember Salman Rushdie I can remember a bloke called Cat Stevens. I used to buy his records. And the bloke came out on the TV and he said that he, 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 he firmly believed that the bloke should be wiped out. I mean, well, I'm, I'm, uh, not, I'm, not uh, I'm not imagining... Cat Stevens is a very gentle uh, person. I cannot imagine him saying those uh, words. Thank you for me. I, I can assure you, I, I, I mean, I don't know him personally, but I can assure I do you know that... Him. Uh, I do know him personally, and I can't imagine well, ask him. Uh, that he... Ask uh, well, him. I will. I will. <laughs> Okay, John. Tell him, tell him I like his music, but keep off the politics. All right, John. Thank you <laughs> very much. Thanks a lot. Uh Let's take a call. Go ahead, Kenny. Hi, George. Yeah, I just want to talk about the trans issue that you were speaking about earlier. Yeah, I've got go a book in front of me by uh, Douglas Murray. And he's got a paragraph here. So I'd just like to redo it if that's okay. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Okay. I was standing on the corner <laughs> at a quarter... All right, I'll, I'll get him off, get him off. He's a nutter. He's a nutter. In the UK, it's 08081-965-522. And in the US, it's plus one... 844-944-3344. Now, Ewan Blair, in the year 2000, was arrested for being drunk and incapable. I had, as I so often do, some tangential connection to that event because somebody that worked for me literally picked him up off the floor of the underground station at Westminster and asked if he was all right, and did he need taken home? Ewan Blair said, yes. Where do you live, said my friend. 10 Downing Street, said Ewan Blair. My friend took him home to 10 Downing Street. That's a true story. And we never said one word about it. Not something that Tony Blair would have done. I'm joined by the one and only Patrick Christie. Patrick, let's crack on. There's so much to talk about. First of all, is it coming home? England look hot to me. I mean, it's looking dangerously like it might be about to come home, isn't it? I mean, it's the hope that kills you all the time. So every yeah. single time I've ever had a, a, any kind of uh, tournament in my lifetime, for a split second, apart from when Fabio Capello was in charge, when there was never a split second, uh, it, it, I've always thought briefly it might be coming home. This time, I think it might. I mean, for now, I mean, we just didn't mess about last night. You know, they that's the thing. That's the thing. It's the lack of fear. 
Every single time, that's what used to kill us. It wasn't just the fact that we had, you know, uh, you know, they, we had the superstars. We had David Beckham. We had the wags. The I've golden. Not, I've not heard the word no, wag no, I, once. There can't be a wag no, on this. The tour. Southgate it hates the wags. I imagine. Right, so, and right. I think, and I think that's the key to our success: fewer wags, more goals. You know. Yeah, well, that is an interesting theory. So, so the guys, you go, you the go guys are hungry. The guys are <laughs> champing at the bit. They might as well put it out on the like on, the, on the field. Like but as a Manchester United supporter like you, yeah. I've got to say, although I was sceptical at the beginning, uh, that Sancho looks the real deal. I, I mean, he does. It's amazing we haven't used him as much earlier. I think we've almost got an embarrassment of riches, a bit like the earlier Bramovich-Chelsea era, but without spending any money, right? Mm. Which is lovely. Sancho's obviously class, right? You don't do that kind of stuff in, the, in Dortmund if, if you're not great. But you've also got the likes of Jude Bellingham, who I believe has just turned 18 years old, apparently, who's... I mean, if he was called Wayne Rooney and was born a few years ago, possibly would be considered the same thing. Jack Grealish comes off the bench and changes the game. Uh, I love Jack. It's, it's brilliant. If only we could have Sancho and Jack, uh, oh. it would be uh, a world-beating... Not, not, uh, not, uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, not on a night out. I wouldn't like to go on a night out with them. Now, uh, changes. Uh, are they going ahead? Is it Freedom Day coming up? Well, it looks that way, and I think there's a couple of factors that have, have come into play. Last time we were here, obviously, we were talking about Matt Hancock and the fact that I think he's now kind of desecrated all the coronavirus rules. And that, to me, means that anyone who wants to stand in front of us now and say that there's any more restrictions, they just simply cannot really do that. And so Sajid Javid, who's replaced him, has kind of got the dream ticket for me, which is basically turn up and be a bit positive, which is what he is saying. Now, there's nothing in the data, which we've heard before, say we have a rolling average currently today, I just checked on the, on the way in here, of 17 deaths a day from coronavirus over the last seven days. Now, if that's enough deaths to lock down an entire country or continue any kind of lockdown restrictions, I think I'd have serious questions about if we would ever get out of a, uh, a lockdown there. But what we're starting to see now is Sage versus Saj, right? So that's what started to happen already, the Sage lot, whose job it fundamentally is just singularly to preserve human life, which I do understand. Uh, are now saying, hang on a minute, he's been a bit cavalier. We can't just treat it like flu. Well, to be fair, if we just treat it like flu, we'd have to accept more deaths every single year than what we might, might do conceivably going forward from the coronavirus. I, I don't or think, road yeah. accidents. I don't know how many road accidents there are in a day. I happen to do, actually. There's 550 deaths a day. 550 deaths a day on our roads. There's 555 cancer deaths a day in the United Kingdom and 550 people die from a heart attack every single day. So you can't the reason I know all that is the same that. number. I looked it up. Yeah. Well, it's very, very yeah. uh, sage of you yeah. to know it. Oh. Thank you. Uh, but uh, you can't, I mean, 17 deaths is 17 of course. Uh, 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 grieving families and so on. But you, you simply can't keep yeah. a society and an economy locked down with that level of fatality. Not when more than half of all British adults have now been double jabbed. You see, that's the thing. We are seeing things like case numbers go up. OK, right, that's fine. But we're now not seeing a direct link in terms of hospital cases going up in terms of deaths going up, which is great. Of course, like you said, rightly, any death is one death too many. However, the singular reason right back at the start of this that we all really kind of consented to a lockdown was to preserve our NHS to make sure it didn't become overwhelmed. The Italy-style scenario of things just spilling over in total carnage. Well, that's obviously not going to happen now. That's obviously not going to We'd have to have some kind of new variant that didn't respond to our vaccines and was absolutely a nightmare. Well, that, that doesn't seem like it's happening. So, really, the idea that we could extend any kind of restriction beyond the, the ones that we've already got, July 19th, Freedom Day, or second Freedom Day, uh, I, I just don't really see how you could possibly do that and get away with it, frankly, certainly in the public eye. No, we had some fun last week with... Uh with uh, Mr. Hancock's uh, uh, lamentable behaviour. Uh, and now, you know, it's like London buses. They keep, they're all coming along at once. <laughs> yeah, uh, Michael Gove and oh. his wife. 
the powerful journalist uh, uh, have uh, have split. What, what can you tell us about that? There's a lot. <laughs> there's a lot of rumours going around about Michael Gove. Um, yes, I, I mean it's obviously it seems to come as a surprise. He's obviously hidden behind Hancock, which is a dubious thing to do at the best of times. Uh, my understanding is that there may well be something about to break about Michael Gove. When someone says to you, when you ask the question to someone relatively close to Michael Gove, and you say, "What, what could it be?" and he says, "Well, it's one of three potential options." That tends to tell you something, and you know. So, so we'll have to wait and see. Obviously, so uh, someone else is I involved. I think one of those potential options, uh, and it is a potential option, might be an absolutely massive shock uh, in terms of certainly might be a shock to his to his wife, definitely. Wow, you'll need to whisper that to me uh, <laughs> off air. Uh, so he survives that. I mean, we're in the same boat uh, that uh, Hancock was. Uh, Boris can't sack anyone for infidelity, no. No. however colourful the infidelity <laughs> turns out to be, because uh, he himself is is uh, is a. Uh, uh, he should have been horsewhipped uh, many decades well, ago. He, he, he's that. a cad. He might have enjoyed <laughs> it. He's a cad, so he can't sack anyone for no. caddishness. No. So does Michael go on and on? Well, I mean, look, fundamentally, you never know what's going on behind closed doors. So, you know, in a similar situation that we had with Hancock, you, you just don't know what someone's marriage is actually like behind closed doors. We, we don't know how, how married they were for a period of time. There's no way of me personally knowing that. Uh, yeah, I definitely think that Gove goes on. I mean, uh, it looks to me as though it's in absolutely no-one's interest whatsoever to necessarily reveal the uh, potential truth behind the story. Gove is clearly very highly regarded, uh, not just amongst... Uh, well, the, the, the Boris Johnson, but also amongst a lot of Conservative voters. He's, the phrase that you always hear about Michael goes, oh, he's the most intelligent man in government. Oh, he's the most intelligent. Now, I, I really know true, him very well. I, I would say that that is true. So is he going, should he go anywhere? It depends what he's done, I suppose. It depends what he's done. And, yeah. But you're confident the media will not reveal what he's done? Why? Because he's close to uh, Rupert Murdoch? I think, I think it's a question of, I think fundamentally, it's a question of absolute proof, isn't it? I see. Yeah. <laughs> there aren't three there witnesses. Is that, yeah. um, OK, what else is rattling? Uh, the, the Keir Starmer yes. had a, had a, a near-death experience uh, and is now roaring that yeah. he's coming home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, seems rather odd on the basis that if Labour performed at a general election, as they performed against me and others in Batley and Spen, they would have fewer than 100 MPs. Yeah. Just think about that. I think it's astonishing, really, isn't it? I mean, the idea that Keir Starmer dares to put the spin on it and go, oh, well, look, you know, he's coming home. And his favourite line for me was, against all the odds. Well, what is that? The odds of you just, the fact that you're leader. So against, against the fact that you are the Labour leader. <laughs> and it's your seat. And it's your seat. And you call and the by-election. all the odds, right, we've managed, to, we've managed to win this election that we occasionally have to do in politics, right? You know, I thought that was staggering. The fact is, as you rightly said there, if Labour lost that share of the vote nationally, I mean, he would go on to lose his. I think this is the worst result possible for the Labour Party. Because if he'd have lost, I'm not convinced he would have gone, but he might have done. But he's definitely not going now. And right. as long as Keir Starmer's in charge of the Labour Party, they ain't winning anything. That might be why the Tories are not making yeah. uh, such a fuss about the defeat. It's a, it's a, win, it's a win. win for them to yeah. keep Keir Starmer as the Labour yeah. leader, don't yeah. you think? I, I think so. I think it's your kind of League Two team taking a Premier League team to extra time. And, and it's, it's a win when you're at an away day, you know. And it's, uh, Look, as far as I'm concerned, I think the Tories should have won this. And I, I want to be very clear on that. I think this would be a disappointing result. It should be a disappointing result for Boris Johnson. That said, if the end game, which it is, obviously, is that Keir Starmer remains in charge of the Labour Party. I mean, no-one's losing not, any sleep. It's, not, it's <laughs> not a bad bonus. <laughs> no, no. Let's hear, uh, Patrick, from George in Paisley. Go ahead, George. 
How are you doing, George? Very good, sir. Very good. Thanks very much. I I was phoning about uh, gang stalking. Have you ever heard of it? Who? Gang stalking. I'm not clear what you're saying. Giant stalking. G A N G stalking. Tang. T A N G. No, I've not. No, no. G A N G. Oh, gang. Stalking. Gang stalking. Gang stalking. Right, go ahead. I wonder if you've heard them about it. No, I don't. I've not heard you've of it. Tell me, of... tell me what it means. I did see a gang of machete wielding uh, people in the centre of Glasgow on the news. Is that what you mean? Was that today or? No, that was the other day. I'll tell you what, have a wee lie doing, uh, George. And I'll go to Roger in Leicester. Roger, welcome. What a privilege it is. I will say, first of all, George. Thank you. Um, <laughs> well, I tell you what, I heard over this weekend and yesterday that Brighton were um, launching um, a um, racist. Um, sessions uh, to be introduced, anti-racist sessions to be introduced into the curriculum this coming term with all their schools, which on the first face of it, it sounds brilliant, but according to form, this is something that is going to be bordering on the, uh, the, the racism, uh, the critical racism theory that is going to be taught. I, I keep Board hearing uh, about this, Roger. Patrick, what yeah. is critical well, race uh, uh, theory? I, I keep reading it, but I've never seen the theory. Look, uh, well, I, I, to be honest with you, George, I've not read the theory. Uh, what, 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 my understanding of what critical race theory is essentially that people like me should say sorry for a lot of stuff that I didn't have not much to do with. Uh, I think it's the idea it taps into a lot of unconscious bias, subconscious bias, things like that, right? And it's the idea that by inherently just essentially being white, etc., you have therefore some kind of privilege, all of this stuff. So that kind of thing. Um, it's an interesting point, that, by the way, because actually that's something that is rearing its head a lot in America now, because obviously it is always... I mean, America's never that far away from racism, is it, to be fair? Uh, but it's also something that's taking place over here now, and even as far as our national trust. Apparently in our national trust now, what you have to do is, uh, if you essentially want to work there, you have to take some kind of uh, anti-racist test. And then also at Oxford University, now, if you, know, if you want to remain in one of their colleges, you have to not only take the test, but get 100%. In being, <laughs> in being a non-racist. On that subject, yeah. uh, that statue of Rhodes. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I think Rhodes was a rogue and, yeah. and, and uh, his statue is of no importance to me. But all these people that are now saying they won't work with the statue there yeah. took the job yeah. when the statue was already there. Yeah, and there's presumably some kids there who, bless them, po possibly just don't really, they, 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 they don't, don't go care, right? And so you end up with now something like 100 dons to go, well, we're not going to, we're going to go on strike. And there's a few people who are like, actually, I'd quite like to be taught, because we're paying for this, aren't we? So, but, you know, so it's, yeah. I find it a, an astonishing situation. I do, look, I do wonder, especially when it comes to the statue things, I can understand the idea of, yeah, the, the one of that was it Edward Colson or whatever. Is anyone going to miss that guy if you get to talk to him? Okay, fine. But instead of just tearing them down, can't we just have more statues? We can have more statues. Let's have more. People, let's have know? more, and let's have a proper educational yeah. material on the wall yeah. underneath the statue. And, and let it ride. Right? Uh, uh, and let a thousand it. flowers bloom. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you can think Cecil Rhodes uh, was a superstar, a rock star of imperialism. I could denounce them uh, in equally vehement terms. Yeah. That's what 
a democracy would do. Well, this is the thing. And also, what we're seeing now is that actually it's taxpayers a lot of the time who end up paying the brunt for this. So, for example, renaming certain street names. So there's a road name in, I believe it's Camden, it's called Black Boy Lane. Now, I don't have to know the exact history of that, but it sounds a bit rum, doesn't it? But actually, when you tear that down or, uh, and replace it with a road name, actually, it is taxpayers who end up having to pay for that. And at this particular moment in time, <laughs> have, we not got, have we not got other stuff on? Well, uh, no, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I condemn uh, Ken Livingston for many things. Yeah. Uh, but one of them is that he allowed uh, a road uh, to be called after uh, the man that murdered uh, Watt Tyler and James Ball, the men that had come to parley with him, uh, he uh, got them into the tent for a meeting and cut their heads off. Yeah. And Ken Livingston was the mayor and could have called it Watt Tyler Way, yeah. but didn't. Let's hear from Kelsey in Rotherham. Go ahead, Kelsey. Uh, hey up, uh, George. Um, I just want to say about the uh, BBC report on mistaken uh, Bill Cosby for Bill Clinton. Yeah, it was funny that, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I just want to say about that. that I, I can see why they were mistaken between the two. I can see why they were mistaken. We um, I don't know. One was white, one was black, one had been the president, one had played the president. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I get your point. Uh, they seem to have the same... Uh, attitude to women yeah 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 um anyway about um although bill I, I has never been convicted so let me quickly put that on the record it's all allegedly with bill clinton yeah um, um anyway i i just want to talk about the the you know the bin bags uh, about uh battle and spend yeah honestly I, I i do believe that the toys had win it unfortunately i uh, you know like Mm. I'm not a Tory, but I do believe they did win it. And it, it does, I mean, you know, you saw this in 2019 in Peabola, where there was allegations of um, the Labour Party also gained some uh, voters, uh, not, not, uh, some may possibly fraudulent ballots. Um, yeah, well, we don't know that, of course, but that, one of the reasons why we don't know is that the recount was refused. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which was very unreasonable because the law is clear that there should be a recount where the margin is less than 1%. Uh, yeah, these uh, videos are remarkable. They remind me of some other elections in some other countries. Ba bin bags full of votes arriving in the early hours of the morning. I'm told by uh, a, a accounting agent from another party uh, that I was... Ahead, I was in first place at 4 a.m. Uh, when suddenly a big slew of votes got thrown on the table, which I assume is the votes that were coming in in the black bin bags. But on that point, uh, Patrick, mm. there is, not specific but general, there is a problem with postal votes in this country. Anybody mm. that's ever yeah. fought Labour in the inner city oh, yeah. knows that the dark arts of uh, working the postal vote is potentially uh, a stain on our democracy. Oh, 100%. And the, the, the difficulty, again, does come back to ultimate absolute proof. However, you don't necessarily always 
need that in the sense that there's some things that are very obvious. That Labour, for my money anyway, has, has two particular ways of usually doing this. One of those is areas where there's uh, a particularly high level of uh, immigration where in some of those seats they have a lot of people who potentially don't actually necessarily live in this country who in some way can get registered over here and vote. The other one is university seats. So Lancaster is a good one. Now again, very important for me to now say, there's no proof of this. However, uh, Lancaster is a, good op uh, is a good option of this. When students uh, move into second year, they normally go into a student house and there's normally, let's say, the six people to that house. Then they move again to another house in third year and then they just go somewhere else. So you tend to have opportunities there where somebody may be registered in three or four different places within the same constituency. And it, uh, if you were that way inclined, it's easy to see how you not only would necessarily be able to vote in that constituency, but in another one as well. And yeah, postal votes are, are rampant. What I do find fascinating, and don't get me wrong, I'm, I'm absolutely not for a mandatory ID card or everything, although at the same time, I suppose anyone who drives got a driver's licence, so it's, uh, there's that. What, what I will say is, the idea that a problem for me that the left has had at times is, is the justification for when you turn up to vote on polling day, why you shouldn't have to show some form of identification. Now, I get ID'd at Weatherspoons, right? So I would imagine that maybe if I'm casting a vote, I should have to be ID'd as well. I, I don't think that's too far-fetched, those two things. And so that implies to me that maybe they know something is going on, right? Because, mm. because if you didn't, why would you bother? Why would you make such a fuss yeah. about it? Uh, look, a postal vote used to be, Kelsey, something that you got if you were literally uh, unable uh, to be there. You might be a soldier. Uh, serving overseas. You might be a business person who's away on a trade mission. You might be uh, bad with the legs. You might be uh, stricken with something that, you, that precludes you going uh, to the polling station. But there were 16,000 postal votes in Batley and Spen, and they can't all have been on a trade mission. Let's hear from Kieran in Sunderland on Labour. Go ahead, Kieran. Assalamu um George Galloway. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Welcome. Thank you so much for your time. Um, um, I would just like to echo what uh, your your um, your previous. Well, the only thing I would like to echo is um, the, the echo of uh, the dark uh, the dark person behind uh, the curtain, as it was. Yeah. Um, it's funny this what, come what, back, um, don't you think, Kieran? Pardon me? It's very strange, this Peter Mandelson comeback. Well, You'd think a man that had been sacked <laughs> twice from the cabinet, pictured uh, clothes shopping with uh, Jeffrey Epstein. Uh, you'd well, think a man with his reputation would be kept out of sight. But he's uh, actually on every TV and every radio interview. Well, this is the reason why he used to be called the Lord of Darkness, Lord yeah. Mandelson. Yeah. The dark lord, the the and, and uh, let's get away from uh, the comedy horror because it, it is real. Um, why is this uh, grotesquing rearing his ugly head? Back up! Is he, is he trying to prove something? Is he trying to hide? Well, something? Th to be what, perfectly, Kieran. To, uh, well, to be honest, and I'll put this to Patrick. Um, I don't think. He's the one to blame. It's Starmer that's putting him up. Starmer yeah. is saying, can you be on the Today program for me tomorrow morning? Yeah. Can you be he, on he has, he has, Sky? He has, he has the, uh, the, the democratic ability to carry on cultivating this, uh, this yacht, this yacht um, wearing this, uh, this speedo wearing this Epstein 
enjoying. Uh, yeah, well, let's not go into his Leave it there, Kieran, because sorry, I, sorry, I, really sorry, don't, sorry. I really don't want to get into Peter Manderson's speedos. Um, not again. Uh, <laughs> why? Why Manderson? Is this, what does this tell us? Uh, I mean, it's possibly only my more risible than something. Uh, I think I, I will not. Uh, the idea for, for that Peter Mandelson can put himself up front. I mean, if you, as a rule, look like you sleep upside down in a cocoon, possibly don't go on national television and lecture anyone about anything. I think that's, that's just the general rule. Uh, he looks like if you tried to shake his hand, you just slip off it. Right? <laughs> so, uh, so, so I think I think start, so, so Mandelson's got got nothing, right? Uh, it's, it's, it's pot kettle black, uh, I think, regarding uh, regarding uh, uh, Manson. I, I don't understand why Starmer's done it. Uh, yeah, I, I just don't at all. I think I think it's possibly the worst. If, if I was going, if you had to pick anyone, I would anyone. I'd rather no one had given that interview than than Peter Mandelson had given the interview. <laughs> Roger in <laughs> London, go ahead, Roger. Ten minutes. You you've you've spoken for the last ten minutes. Give me two, uh, two three minutes. Roger, are you there? Yes. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can. Go ahead, sir. Well, I have to say that, uh, George, you have done a really good service and given voice to the suppressed people in Batman Spain. And uh, I have to give you all the, you know, all the credibility to actually give voice to the voiceless people of Batman Spain. Labour thought that they could just uh, ride ride the wave of the sympathy wave that it was actually there for sister, Jokok's sister. So she came in and she did that. You never see Keir Starmer coming in, doing the washing up or doing the convincing, you know, doing the canvassing. He wasn't there. He wasn't there in Batman. No, uh, Keir, Keir Starmer uh, fully expected to lose yeah. the constituency. No, he was That's missing in action. You know, everyone he, came, was uh, he came once uh, for a photo call, essentially, and and then uh, yeah. distanced himself uh, from it. Do you think? Yeah. Uh, thanks, Raja. Do you think, Patrick, mm. that the uh, the Hancock business played at all in the Tory vote? Well, the that, that, to that's win? what the Tories are saying. Isn't it? That's what they're saying, which is that Matt Hancock has done us right now. That, that may or may not have been true. I can understand why it might have been. I mean, the idea that any health secretary with name at the bottom of the rules, etc., has been treating those rules as a contempt. I can understand why that might have played badly on the doorstep. What I will say, just just specifically with regards to the Labour Party, just quickly, I think it's something that they've got a bit of an issue with is it's entirely their own making. It's the identity politics they've been playing for a very long time. Now, if you try to put everyone into a certain pigeonhole and then try to appeal to all of those different pigeonholes, it cannot be done. So, for example, you cannot simultaneously appeal to your traditional working class vote at the same time as appealing to uh, large swathes of the Asian community, let's say, and then appealing to the LGBTQ+, plus whatever it's called now, community, plus on top of that, then trying to appeal to the rampant feminists, etc. All of those things, whilst each and every one of those is, 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 is entirely worthy in its own right, you cannot appeal to all all of those things in its entirety. Especially in the time. social media era. No, you just can't. Because uh, everybody knows no. what you've said and no. promised to other people. Last call uh, of the night, Gemma in Litchfield. Go ahead, Gemma. Gemma, go ahead. Right, I want to talk about being honest in politics. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's hard to be honest in politics because the whole thing is riddled with um, mendacity. But, right, if you're a lawyer, which unfortunately... What's his name? Keir Starmer is. Um, he's spending all of his time uh, being right about everything. And as Patrick Christie said, you know, he can't appeal to every community. So he has to, in my 
layman terms, mark his mm. territory and his cards. And he, I feel that he has to just say who he is. I know he went mm. on the show with Piers Morgan and he did all those things. It's not good enough. It really isn't good enough. You know, there were, there were four other candidates and they were all better than him. Yeah, OK, Gemma, thanks. I'm sorry I cut you off, but it's uh, very late at, at night. And, of course, there's a legend on the line. It's Norma in Bristol. Go ahead, Norma. Hello, George. Um, I, I like listening to Barry Atwan, Mr Barry Atwan. He's very good, yes. Uh, oh, I always like him. He's a great speaker and he's got a lot of common sense. And his ideal solution of one state. Israel don't want that, but it's, it's, it's great. Well, they don't want two states either, so perhaps you're no, as no. well fighting for the right thing. And the other thing was, I was going to say, why no women callers? You just had one, so that's all right. Two women we callers, but we need far more, Norma. I, yeah, I know that people uh, consider you to be an institution and that you'll, oh. you'll keep the side up, but we do need more women callers. Uh, so well, I'm, guess... I'm grateful to Gemma in Litchfield yeah. uh, for that. Um, yeah, I mean, any other points? Yeah, I always learn something new with you anyway. That's why I like listening to you. And I'm sorry you didn't win because, you know, personalities are the thing, aren't they? With conviction. And that's what you've got. And, you know, I just think that it's, um, it's a pity you didn't get in because I don't get bored with you. And I know you've got to go now. I've got to go. Moats is the best. Keep going, George. It's the only way. God bless you. No, as long as uh, I've got breath, uh, I'll keep uh, going. It is a bit of a shrunken parliament uh, to pick up one of her points. No great figures in today's no. parliament. No, 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 there are. And I think I used to look back on, I, I imagine you certainly did as well, because you were literally in it, actually, at one point. But um, I used to look back on now, and I think at any moment in time, it felt to me as though if it all went apart, there were a few people on either side of that bench who may be able to actually run the country. And now, I actually just don't think there are. In fact, I'm not, in fact I think there are shadow cabinet. I mean, Lord Lucan could be a Liberal Democrat MP right now. We wouldn't have been any the wiser, would we? He may well be. He may well be. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a problem. It's, true. it's a problem, Pat though. Patrick, I used to walk along the corridor, even when I'd been there a decade, and look round at yeah. this big figure yeah. that was yeah. going past me. Yeah. There was a hundred men and women of independent mind, more than a hundred. Uh, there were big, big figures that, as you say, could have taken over as Prime yeah. Minister in the afternoon. No longer. In Harold Wilson's cabinet, it was said that there were ten potential Prime Ministers, and all of them wanted to be. <laughs> Patrick Christie's, thank you for joining us. It's been marvellous for me. I hope it was for you. If it was, see you next week. God willing. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.